0: Well good morning. Let's stand and read John 21. Now I realized last week we read verse 15 to 17 and we're going to start at 18 today, but we should read the whole thing just for it to make sense in context. Just starting at 18 will be kind of weird. So we're going to start at verse 15, read to the end, but in the sermon work from 18 forward. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Tend my sheep." lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Shepherd my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know of all things and you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished but when you grow old you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you wish, do not wish to go now this he said signifying by what kind of death he would glorify god and when he had spoken this he said to him follow me peter turning around saw the disciple whom jesus loved following them the one who also had leaned on his bosom on the night of the supper and said lord who is the one who betrays you? So Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, and what about this man? Jesus said to him, if I want him to remain until I come, what's that to you? You follow me. Therefore the saying went on among the brethren that the disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but only if I want him to remain until I come, what's that to you? This is a disciple who is testifying to these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. And there also... And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. Lord, we are coming to your word once again this week to learn from you. And I can't read people's minds, and I don't know where people are at in their lives, but you... Know every single person here, and you can judge the thoughts and intentions of their hearts and where they're at So I pray God that Whatever message you have for the for us today Lord that you would you would work on the minds of everyone in here including myself So that we would be transformed from the inside out And God we want to be people that are pleasing to you and we want to be people that truly know how to follow you you called Peter to follow you? So I know you call us the same way Give us uh, ears to hear and, and the minds to understand your truth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. a monumental day in Genesis House Church. We will be now finishing the last sermon in the book of John, two and a half years later. Can you believe it? One and a half years in Exodus, two and a half years in John, and six months of miscellaneous sermons, and this is where we are today. So I don't know about you, but I found the last couple years really profitable. Uh, for myself, uh, personally, um, it's helped me grow my own understanding of who Christ is, and it's helped me understand how to live out my faith. Um, I've been able to use the Book of John in many evangelistic opportunities. Some of the things I've learned in my studies and then taught you have helped me in relating to other people in the community and the way I speak to people. And uh, so it's been very, very helpful to me. And I'm not sure exactly which book we're going to tackle next. I've got a couple ideas. It'll be a New Testament book and it'll be a small book. We're going to do a shorter one. Probably something like uh, Peter or John or Timothy or something like that in in the epistles, pastoral epistles maybe. But wherever we go, I'm confident that we will continue to grow in our faith just like we did through the book of John. Because after all, all of the Word of God is rich and profitable for teaching. So with all that being said, let's jump into our passage. And you remember that last week we looked at the restoration of Peter uh, back into full-time ministry service, despite his previous denials of Jesus Christ. And you remember with that restoration, uh, he was given responsibility. Um, He was not to return to his old career, uh, back to being a fisherman. He was to tend to Jesus' lambs or shepherd his sheep, which is another way of Jesus saying, you're now responsible for my flock, like the church. And we saw him in Acts, of course, starting off in that ministry. But you and I spent a lot of time together discussing then what Peter's role as a shepherd would have looked like in application to us. And we just looked at those qualifications on the wall, because. that's what Peter also had to have in his own character. But, you know, God had called him into, or into this uh, role as shepherd and elder. And so we, you and I had to spend time looking at what that looks like for myself and anybody else who will leave Genesis' house. And if you missed that sermon, it's up on the website. But Jesus wasn't quite done with Peter. Yes, he was to be restored. Yes, he was to be recommissioned. But there was something else he needed to know. There was something about his future that Peter needed to know. You see, taking taking care of the flock of Christ was not going to be filled with a life of rose-colored glasses in every instance. It was going to come at a high cost. And look at verse 18 with me. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But you, when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now, This he said signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to Peter, follow me. What Jesus was giving Peter here was a prophecy concerning his future martyrdom. And what Jesus Jesus wanted Peter to know was for the next number of years, as a young man, he was going to be able to dress himself and walk wherever he wanted. In other words, Peter was going to be free to make his own decisions and basically be in control of his own actions. But in the future, this was not to be the case. In the future, someone else was going to dress him up and gird him and control him. Meaning that one day, Peter would be seized, he'd be bound, and he'd be led away to execution. Now, this reference to being having his arms stretched out or his hands stretched out we think is a prediction that Peter was to be crucified. Because again, if you're going to have your arms like pulled out and your arms stretched out, it's likely that he's going to be dying in the same way that Jesus died. And the fact that he says, follow me, means he's going to walk in Jesus' footsteps. So the likelihood that that, that he was crucified was very high. And church tradition has it that Peter did die by crucifixion under the reign of Nero, the emperor of Rome, in the mid-60s. Now this prophecy would have been around, uh, you know, 33 AD, somewhere in there. So this is about 30 years later when Jesus be crucified, or Jesus, I mean Peter be crucified under Nero in the mid-60s. So again, Jesus is saying to Peter, right now, as a shepherd of my sheep, you're going to basically walk and making your own decisions for 30 years. And it's going to be, you're going to be in control of your own actions and so on and so forth. But in the end, following me is going to cost you your life. Now I think it's important as a church to recognize what Jesus has commanded Peter to follow him meant for him. You see, he was going to have to lose his life for the sake of Christ. Now, his death was not a just cause death. It wasn't fair. It wasn't like even Peter was guilty of a crime. His guilt was due to his association with Jesus. That it was guilty for being associated with Jesus Christ, and therefore he was going to be put to death. Now this is not the first time either that Jesus had told them this. Uh, back in John 16:2, he had told them he was already going to lose his life. I'll read this to you. He says, they will make you outcast from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he's offering service to God. These things they will do because they do not know the Father or me. So again, as a shepherd of the flock, Peter was going to be martyred for his faith some 30 years later because of his connection to Jesus Christ and for no other reason. Now, these prophecies really got me thinking. This, these two prophecies got me thinking considering considering uh, Peter's death. Because he's a shepherd, and that's the reality for him. And I was thinking, I'm myself, am a shepherd of this church, and people are rising to be shepherds of this church. So this is a reality not only for Peter, and not only for myself, and not only for the leaders of this church as well. So it's a pretty, a pretty big cost. But what's interesting is that... Um, it's not just for the leadership, even though it's primarily for the leadership. This is actually a promise to all Christians in the New Testament. All to all Christians face this potential persecution. Look at this in second uh, Timothy. It says it says in Second Timothy, for it is for granted to you on actually that's Philippians, isn't it? There you go. Second Timothy, there you go, three twelve. It says, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ will be persecuted. That's not a might be it's a will-be, it's a promise. If you live in a godly life in Christ, you will be persecuted. Consider 1, uh, Philippians now, 129. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His name's sake. All right. So two promises of suffering in the New Testament, and there's multiple others. Now, not that all persecution means that one will lose their life for Christ, because it comes in various forms. But there but there is the potential for that to occur there is a potential because of association for Jesus for that to occur And this has been true to, through the entire church age now. I shared these stats with you a few months ago in another sermon uh, but um, probably you will not remember these and uh, and you probably didn't write them down in your, in your uh, Bible. So we'll re- refresh your memory with this, though. This comes from John MacArthur's commentary, published in 2008. So it's 10 years old now. Uh, and considering the numbers I'm going to share with you, can, you'll see how these numbers will have changed already in 10 years. But he estimated by in 2008, by that time, that since the establishment of the church in Acts, which is only 2,000 years ago, about 70 million Christians have died for their faith in Christ. 17 million. I, did, I looked on the Olympics watching the Canadian team coming in. There's 37 million people in Canada now. So basically wipe out our nation twice over for their association to Jesus Christ. That's what's happened in 2000 years. But here's where it's staggering. Two-thirds of those 70 million, two-thirds happened in the last century alone. In the last hundred years alone, 45 million have lost their life to for Christ. 45 million. And it's averaged 100,000 a year since 1990. So if, if it's 100,000 a year since 1990, then from 2008 to 2018 is 10 more years, so we can add another million to that stat. Now do you know, take a guess, What the two biggest, who the two biggest culprits have been of, of, of annihilating Christians? Think of Who do you think it is? Communists. Communists, one, what's the other one? Yeah, Islam. Rise of Islam. The peaceful nation. Don't we'll get fooled by that. But I think it's an important lesson for us as a church, again, because we've lived pretty peaceful lives as Canadians. Pretty peaceful lives. We haven't had to face the, the same realities as the rest of the world and as a Christian. But we need to be prepared for that if it comes. And we're not abnormal if we face persecution. We're not abnormal. We're just normal. <laughs> We're just normal. And God hasn't abandoned us. If, and he's not walked away from us if we face persecution. He's right there cheering us on. And he's cheering us on. And it's actually bringing glory to him. You notice in verse 19, what he says to Peter, he says, signifying by what death he would glorify God. So God wasn't going, oh, I'm so sad for you. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm sorry I abandoned you, Peter. He's like, you know what? I'm proud of you, Peter, because you're following me. I died, for the, I died for the sake of the truth, and you're dying for the sake of the truth. Now at the time, Peter probably didn't fully understand this, but the cool thing is we know by the end of his life he got it. Look at this great, great quote by Peter. Uh, this is near the end of his life uh, as he processed what Jesus said to him if you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear his name. You know, just read those highlighted words with me. Okay, if I were to say to you, I want you to tell me the context in which Peter you think he's talking. You're to rejoice, overjoyed, be overjoyed. You're blessed. God rests on you. Praise God that you bear his name. What category would you think I'm talking about? finances, <laughs> relationships, your marriage, his love for you, right? Rejoice, be overjoyed, God rest and you, you bear his name. It's all these like, rah, rah, like build you up in your faith kind of like talk. It's a category of persecution for the sake of Jesus Christ. And listen to Peter's words. Listen to his words. He gets it. He gets it. And what I love about this is this very man who denied Jesus for fear of losing his life is now proclaiming that his loss of his life would later on bring glory to uh, to God and be something to rejoice over. So you want to talk about a change in mentality over 30 years in maturity? Look at the guy's mindset towards his life in relationship to Jesus Christ. However, at the time when Peter first heard this, it did raise some concern for him there wasn't concern to be had. And we pick up that nature of the concern in verse 20. It says here, Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back on his bosom at the supper, and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? So Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, and what about this man? Jesus said to him, If I want him to remain until I come, what's that to you? You just follow me. Therefore, actually, I'll leave it there. Leave it there. The disciple that had been walking behind Jesus and Peter as they were conversing on the beach was John. And John was the one who was referred to as the one that Jesus loved. He was the one who asked Jesus on the night of the Last Supper who was going to betray him. And he was the one who penned and authored this book. But what Jesus had just told Peter, that he was going to die for his faith in Jesus and as, and as a shepherd of his flock. But John was also a disciple and a follower of Jesus and was going to shepherd his flock. And so Peter wanted to know, if I'm going to die for the sake of you, Jesus, what do you have in mind for my friend John? What's life going to be like for him? Now it's often debated amongst Christians whether Peter's question came from a place of genuine concern. Was he simply worried that one of his closest friends is going to suffer the same fate as him? And so he just really wanted to know for, for his deep worry for his buddy? Or did it actually come from a place of curiosity? He just—he didn't really care one way or another. He just wanted to know. Or was it a third option? Was he actually asking the question because he was coming from a place of comparison? John had a spirit of comparison. and He didn't think it was fair that he was going to, in Christian service, have to face this kind of hardship and John was going to go scot-free. Well, I'm going to suggest to you that it's the third option. The third option. He didn't think it was fair, And he didn't like the fact that he he was going to have to face a life of hardship that he himself was, that John wasn't going to have to face. And I would suggest this by the way Jesus answers. See, when Jesus answers in verse 22, he doesn't come in with a spirit of gentleness. He's not like gently speaking to him. He basically talks to him like this. That's none of your business, Peter. It's none of your business. He says it in a rebuking way. Look at this. He says... If I want him to remain until I come, what's that to you? What's that to you? You follow me. In other words, none of your business what I'm going to do with John and what his future life's going to be, Peter. Uh, You have a job to do. And that's, I want you to be personally devoted in your own life. His answer to Peter is very revealing. It's very revealing. And the reason why it's revealing Is this is that Jesus would not let Peter play the comparison game he wouldn't let Peter play the comparison game he wouldn't let him compare his calling Christian service to anyone else and he wouldn't let him compare his potential life of hardship in relation to anyone else he didn't matter to Jesus if he thought Peter was drawing the short end of the stick he was to focus solely on his personal devotion and loyalty to Jesus Christ and, uh, man, church, is that ever a huge lesson for us there. That's a huge lesson for us. How many times have you and I got caught up in that spirit of comparison game? For For some of us, perhaps not even a week goes by where this doesn't occur. And you and I know the game well. When you and I try to measure our spiritual temperature in relation to someone else, in order to find out how we stack up on our faith in comparison to others. And it goes both ways. If we measure ourselves against another Christian or another church and we see, deem ourselves as better than them, as we have this, we try to elevate ourselves among, amongst, amongst someone else, we do it as a way to make ourselves feel better and justify ourselves. Or if we, we often do this in a negative way. We, we look at other people and go, I'm never going to measure up to what they Who they are and what they've achieved in their lives. And so therefore we have this sense of hopelessness. But again, we often do this both in a positive and negative way. Where we measure and compare ourselves in our Christian walk against others. And I wish I could say, as your pastor, I wasn't immune from this. (laughs) But the problem with studying the, the scriptures is that the first person that gets convicted in the week before it comes to you is me. Because I, I, I have to study this Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And then God has to do work in my life before He does a work in yours. So well, I'm going to share some struggles of mine with you. Not because uh, I'm looking for sympathy or anything like that. But just to show you that I'm no different than any of you in, in, the, in the spirit of comparison. And I want to share with you how it looks in my life. And um, I've got a couple examples. Yeah. And um, not in any particular order, but one of the first times I was really faced with this was I going to Regent College. Going to Regent College. Uh, so, I haven't been in university for 20 years, and when I went to university, I took phys ed. And the reason I took phys ed is because for, through my high school years, I was very interested in sports, so my mind is already wired that way. Here I am starting over in education because I'm supposed to be ordained and it's going to take about 15-20 years to get that done. But regardless, so I have to go and take this process and go through it. So here I'm on my very first course and I'm, I sit in classroom and there's a lot of people on there who already have degrees. Uh, there's people in there that who, who have been uh, like professional students. There's people in there who know the professors, know the courses. And I'm sitting there wondering, as I sit in class, how do I stack up? How do I stack up? And to be honest, a lot of my stress and anxiety through that whole two weeks was I often felt like I was out of my league. And I was so worried about not being top on the class because I, I, I was a bad student in high school, but a, a, a dean's honor roll student in university. But i would never been tested for 20 years. And here I was now at Regent College, enrolled in an ordination program. And I'm used to being this this honorable student, and like, how am I going to stack up in this class? And it was, yeah, it was interesting as those two weeks went by how, how I had to work through those things. Secondly, I already knew that some people's attitude towards Genesis House in the community was already negative because of my lack of education in the ministry. I already knew uh, coming into the Genesis House through Word on the Street and through different conversations That people were thinking, what kind of church are you running with this gym trainer who's going to lead you in in how to live your life with the Lord? And I already knew that some of the people's comments about our church was already in the negative. So I also had this added pressure on myself to to do well because I thought I have to prove these people back home in Okotoks that that I'm actually legitimate. And I'm and I'm I'm not only like I have the ability to be educated and do well in school. So there's all these things going through my head. They're not good things, but those are the things that are going through my head. And for these reasons then, it, I'm not going to lie, but it, it kind of when I heard about certain churches that are struggling and maybe going through some issues, in a way it's sort of like this kind of silent kind of gratefulness for it because it's like, haha, see, it takes more than just you know uh, what you think makes a church well, to run, um, let me try that again, yeah, you get the point. Just this idea of like, there's this sort of silent secret of um, pride going, ha you're struggling and we're not, and be- and so therefore education doesn't matter. And all these things are going through my head and they're not right, they're not good. But the flesh wants to puff you up and basically to do all these things to justify yourself. The crazy thing was, is you know, as a as, uh, I was listening to Francis Chan like, speak about a pastor he knew in India, and uh, he was hearing about North American churches struggling, and uh, he was hearing about North American churches closing down, and Francis said this guy started weeping on the phone, weeping on the phone because of all the, 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 the atrocities the church in North America was facing in terms of their strength. And Francis was saying, like, it was crazy, like, I'm the North American pastor, and I'm not even the one crying about how churches are folding and struggling. And this guy doesn't even know us in another country, and he cares so much about the destiny of the church, because he knows it belongs to Jesus Christ. Again, because their flesh and this this nature wants to rise up and say, you know what, you want to justify your existence, you want to feel good about yourself. And the spirit of comparison drives you not to see Jesus' full picture and his command and devotion is, is telling us to follow him in complete loyalty. I mean, these are just some of the things that have gone through my head, and I get it. But you can see why Jesus is called to Peter then not to worry about what everyone else thinks and what everyone else is doing, or why life isn't fair for so-and-so and so on. And just to simply follow him is completely relevant for not only my life, but yours as well. How often do you guys get sidetracked in your obedience and loyalty to christ because you spend too much time preoccupied with what everyone else is supposed to do in their walk with god and not your own we do this in so many ways we can do it in the dialogue after church we don't speak not because i'm not good to say or because the lord's not asking us to say something but because we're so worried about what other people think about us if we speak out we don't want to we want to, we compare ourselves to others and we're too afraid to maybe say something God's put in our heart to come forward We do it in Bible studies. We do it on the houseboat When, when we're in the houseboat retreat and certain men share their lives and how what um, some of the things they are going through and how much of a Struggle it is and often some of us are like the Pharisees um, In the parable that Jesus spoke about in Luke 18 when when they're done we think God. Thank you I'm not like them you might even do it in the woman's retreat when you're there and think, oh man, I'm sure glad my life's not a mess like hers. Or vice versa. Man, I feel so hopeless in comparison to her. We do it in people's houses. We do it when we're over dinner. We do it in coffee. We do it when we overhear people in conversation about their life. We do it when we hear overhear, overhear, overhear people in conversation about their church. Sometimes we do it in the relationship to how people are doing physically. Our physical health becomes a means of comparison. So we hear other people, we look around and see they're doing so well in their health. And then we just seem to go from one illness to another and suffer, suffer, suffer. And we look around and we start to compare and go, man, I'm just so bitter. And these bitterness, bitter seeds come into our lives because we just want to be like someone else. Or emotional issues. We think no one else seems to struggle like I do. And you become disillusioned and you think, don't think life is fair. And so therefore you have a spirit of comparison. And so you start to be disillusioned towards other people and God over these issues. Or perhaps it's in marriage where your situation is that your spouse is stronger in the faith than you. And you know God wants you to grow in your own faith. You know it. But you simply give up because every time you talk to your spouse or try to live out your your life, you realize that you just feel hopeless compared to them. And so you just shut down and you don't even bother following what God wants for your own life. Or you know your marriage roles, so you know that you're to, as a woman you're to called to respect your husband, and as a man, you're called to, to love your wife. You know this. but what you do is because the other person's not fulfilling their role, you think, "I'm not going to bother following God because I, 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 uh, I'm not going to do it." And, I mean at least I'm trying to some degree, they're not trying. so why would I even bother trying to fulfill what God wants for me because I'm just comparing myself to my spouse. And they're not trying, so I'm not trying. And the question for Jesus would be, well, what about them? What about them? Don't worry about me, God. What about them? Change them. Again, like Peter's, or Jesus' comment is incredible. He says to Peter, if I want him to remain until now, what is that to you? You follow me. He says to me, Andrew, who cares about what other churches are doing? Who cares about who's got straight A's in Regent College? You just worry about following me. He says to you who are struggling through marriage, struggling through health, struggling through other insecurities, saying, I don't care what other people are going through. You just follow me. But, But why do we do this? Why do we feel the need to compare in the first place? The simple answer, of course, which is the Sunday school answer, you know, in kindergarten is, well, we're all sinners and full of pride. Okay, I I agree. But that's too simple. I think that's too simple. You know, I think what it is is this. And this is just my thoughts. These aren't from the scriptures. You can take it or leave it, debate me in dialogue, whatever. But I think we do this because we all have this innate need to be validated. We all want to feel like we're worth something or, or worth some, or worth worth, or something, or to justify our existence, and we want to know that we matter to God and to others. And for many of us, it's important that life is just fair. I'm not expecting God that everything's easy. I just want it to be fair. I want I want a fair shot like everybody else. And so what we do is we enter into the spirit of comparison to try to elevate ourselves, to find the greater purpose and. Per- Sense of self-worth. I think that's the reason why we end up in these in these issues. But here's the sad thing: it doesn't work. <laughs> it doesn't work. I've personally, personally, I've never actually received any healing from any insecurity or conquered any fear by trying to do this. Never. Even if I come up with a legitimate answer, all it takes is another conversation or two hours later I'm back in the same pattern. And I suggest it's probably the same for you. It doesn't work. A spirit of comparison doesn't work. It doesn't actually change and bring any healing or wholeness to your life. Joe Dongell rightly says this, he says, Christians often become disillusioned and bitter when comparing their faith with others. Isn't that true? Have you ever in the spirit of comparison, either if you elevate yourself above someone or, dip, or make yourself hopeless compared to someone, you ever walk away feeling whole and, and like you've been healed and like, you're, 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 like God's doing an amazing work in your life? You feel disillusioned and bitter. This is why Jesus doesn't want us to be preoccupied with comparing ourselves to others. He wants us to focus on our personal devotion to Him. And that's why He gave Jesus' this command twice. In verse 19, he says, follow me. And in verse 22, he says, follow me. I just want to finish by reading verses 24 and 25. It kind of It's a conclusion to the gospel, and they're not really part of the, the sermon, but they're, they're worth reading. It says, this is the disciple who is testifying to these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. You know, these two verses kind of amaze me because when I read the New Testament, I think I have a lot to go on in terms of who Jesus is and understanding what he'd done and what he'd said and what he taught. But John lets us know here that we only have a selective, a selective rather than exhaustive record of Jesus's life and ministry. That's incredible to think about because how much more do the disciples actually know about Christ that occurred over the three year period that was never actually written down? And those are stories and things we'll only learn when we get to glory. So, there's a few lessons I do want to hit from today's sermon. The first one is simply this as believers, For some reason this keeps skipping ahead. Okay, try this again. Lesson one. Genuine followers of Jesus will all face some form of persecution in their lifetime. Genuine followers of Jesus will face, at some point, persecution in their lifetime. It's a promise from Philippians. It's a promise from Timothy. Now, persecution doesn't have to always come in the form of death. That's not always what it means, but it can mean that. You can be shunned by a friend at school because of your connection to Christ. You can be shunned at work because of your connection to Christ. You can be mistreated in the family because of your connection to Christ. There's so many different ways persecution can occur. But ultimately, as it is a reality in places like Iran and North Korea and and, uh, the rest of the world, it can mean losing your life. Second, to be persecuted for the sake of Christ brings glory to God. I don't know if you ever think of that. I wonder if we were to be persecuted for the sake of Christ, if we walk away going, God, where are you in all this? And he's like, I'm right here. I'm totally right here. It's the life I had to live. It's the life Peter had to live. It's the life the Acts Church had to live. He says, I'm right here. It brings glory to the Lord. Hmm. It's interesting, these things. Maybe new batteries, maybe. Third lesson as believers we are not to be comparing ourselves with others In terms of our walk with God and life of ministry service Rather we are to be focused on our own personal devotion to following Jesus We're not to be comparing ourselves with others in terms of our walk with God and life of ministry service Rather we're to be focused on our own personal devotion to following Jesus Christ easy to say, hard to do. It's hard when we see others who go through life seemingly untouched by this world emotionally, physically, financially and we seem to struggle in all these areas. It's hard not to get into a life of comparison when we seem to suffer hardship and everyone else has to go, go through life when somewhat of ease. It's hard to not puff ourselves up when our own faith or our church is doing well in comparison to others. Or vice versa, we get deflated because we think everyone else is doing better than us. But as Christians, we need to be okay with how Jesus deals with others. And we need to be focused on glorifying and following Him personally. But could you imagine the unity that would exist within the Christian community if this happens? Could you imagine the unity in the church? If we weren't worrying about everybody else's business and what everyone else is doing? Or how it would prevent us from meddling in other Christians' lives? Or how it would solve a lot of marriage issues? Because we get off the crazy wheel, because both people aren't functioning in their role, and one person says, I'm going to devote my life completely to the Lord, no matter what the other person does fast it could change a marriage or even change your parenting with your children one parent's completely devoted to God and going just gust- full gusto and-, and doing everything he can just to try to raise their children in the best way possible instead of both parents throwing in the towel or how much better relationships would be between friends if we obeyed all of God's commands and how to reconcile when conflict happens and overlook wrongs and things like that Incredible unity if we actually took Jesus' command to heart. Finally, now this is a bit more of a scary lesson for me because this isn't from the Bible in terms of the actual text, and I recognize that, so you can take it or leave it. The other three definitely are. This is my own personal thoughts, but I think they're fitting. And I think this is fair from the commentary of Joe Dongell and... The the context but a spirit of comparison will not lead to spiritual wholeness and healing rather it sets the table for disillusionment and bitterness Spirit of comparison never leads to healing and wholeness. (laughs) It always leads to disillusionment and bitterness The funny thing about this is we often compare as a means of trying to bring ourselves some kind of sense of self-worth That actually does the exact opposite. We still have the same insecurities, fears, and failures, regardless of whether we do this or not. So, that is the final sermon in John. And just like John has been throughout the whole course of the two and a half years, heavy hitting. He doesn't mince words, and God's truths ring clear through these verses.